the number of people say it's important to live in a democracy has declined very rapidly. Welcome to Foreign Policy. I'm Sarah Wildman, FP's print editor, and you're listening to The ER. Joining me in the Washington studio today, all the way from New York, is Cameron Abadi, FP's deputy editor. Cam, thanks for making the trip. Joining Cam and I is Yasha Munk, author of the upcoming book, The People Versus Democracy, Why Our Freedom is in Danger and How to Save It, which is out March 5th. Yasha is also a lecturer on government at Harvard University, a columnist at Slate, the host of the Good Fight podcast, and obviously, most importantly, a frequent contributor to FP. It's amazing he also has time to write books, but this one is his third. Honestly, it couldn't also be more timely. Yasha has been paying attention with growing concern to the global appeal of populism and populist leaders and a decline of support for liberal democracy for some time now. In the U.S., he's monitored the first year of the Trump administration, who, as Monk points out, has taken on the press, the judiciary, and political institutions. In Europe, he's followed the peaks of populist appeal across France, the U.K., Germany, where the alternative for Germany, a far-right party, became the third largest party in the most recent elections. And, of course, it's not just the West by any stretch. We're watching Poland, Hungary, the Czech Republic. But let's let Yasha speak. Yasha, you make a point at the beginning of your book that what we're seeing is what you call the rise of illiberal democracy or a democracy without rights and undemocratic liberalism or rights without democracy. I'd like us to start here by just simply defining those terms and how we know what we're seeing. Yeah. So uh, to understand our political system, I think um, you've got to understand that it has two key elements. One is the liberal element, which has nothing to do with liberal and conservative, nothing to do with you know Barack Obama versus George W. Bush. It's the rule of law, the protection of individual rights, um, the separation of powers, protection of minorities. Um, and the other is the democratic element, which is translating popular views into public policies, actually having the people in some sense rule themselves. Now, these two things are important because uh, I think we care about them. If you can lead your life freely, you decide what you do, who you spend time with, what you say, which God do you worship or don't worship. And if you have a sense that there's not anybody who's born to rule over you, but that you and your fellow citizens collectively get to decide what happens politically, then you're free in two important ways. Now, uh, my fear is that these two elements of our political system are slowly starting to drift apart. But what we've had for a long time is a system of rights without democracy, where the liberal part was there, but the democratic part started to erode because of a role of money in politics, because of a revolving door between legislators and lobbyists, because a political elite has distanced itself more and more from ordinary voters, and because the legislature, the prime voice of the people's will, is really restricted in the decisions it gets to make because of independent bureaucratic agencies, international institutions, free trade treaties, central banks, uh, courts, and all of those things. Now, what we're seeing in many countries, in part as a reaction to that, I think there's some deeper drivers of it as well, is the inverse, is the rise of what I would call democracy without rights or illiberal democracy. So what is a, what is a populist? A populist is somebody who says all of the problems in politics are just because the elite is corrupt and self-serving and doesn't care about you. And so all we need to do in order to solve a problem is for somebody who truly represents the people who's uniquely able to do that, to take power and push aside all of those independent institutions, make sure the media doesn't keep criticizing him, make sure that courts can't impede on what that 
People's Tribune wants to do. And that's the solution. So what we get to there is a system that often does actually translate popular views into public policies, often at the back of unpopular minorities, but that gradually undermines the liberal institutions, like independent courts, like the free media, that we need to sustain the system. I'd love to get to some examples of all this, but before anything, I would put on my sort of academic hat. Uh, it's been a while since I've been in grad school, but I, um, to, to sort of figure out where the boundaries of some of these concepts are. Because uh, I think the democracy one is, is, is pretty clear in terms of the people being able to express their will into po- in politics. But if we take the liberal concept and pick this apart just a bit more, it seems like one part of the liberal concept is about having neutral institutions, right? About having separations of power, having institutions that treat everybody equally. And then another part, you you mentioned the concept of rights and equal rights being uh, an important part of liberalism. But I'd love to hear more about whether how complicated this question of rights is, because uh, if a populist were in this room, you would say, well, you can't give rights to some people without taking them away from others. Is it really possible to have perfectly equal rights? And, And if you have sort of two competing minorities, one, you know, if you have in a society people who are atheists are one minority and people who are religious, maybe another minority, you can't privilege, you can't give rights to one without sort of disadvantaging the other. No, that's just untrue. So obviously rights can butt up against each other, right? Um, So, you know, even freedom of speech is limited. You can't shout fire in a crowded theater because there's a compelling interest there to preserve people's lives, right? It may even be that certain rights conflict directly. But but that doesn't mean that there isn't a coherence to how, where we draw the boundaries. There may be certain hard cases, but it's absolutely clear, for example, when you look at the Swiss example, where a great example of a liberal democracy in action, democracy without rights in action, where a majority of people decide to outlaw the building of minarets. So the Swiss constitution now reads, there's freedom of religion in Switzerland, the building of minarets is forbidden, which doesn't make much sense. Now, look... Obviously, in some sense, you can call anything a right and say, well, this impedes on the right of a majority to tell others not to build a minaret. But that's just not using the term sensibly. So right? the I mean, what a right is, is that I have a moral claim and a legal claim for the state not to impede what I do in a certain range of things without compelling reason. Now, I have a right to freedom of religion, to freedom of worship. And unless the state has a compelling reason to stop me from building a minaret, it shouldn't be allowed to do so. That is a very straightforward outflow of what it means to have religious rights. And we don't grant an equivalent right to, you know, not have within your sight symbols of a religion you dislike. That just doesn't come from freedom of religion. Isn't that almost precisely the case in, in France right now when we have the type of state secularism there is, 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 claims it's a right in public to, to, to not be exposed to religious symbols? That's how France seems to define a certain type of right. Are, are different societies sort of free to kind of define rights in, 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 to protect certain groups uh, in that way? Or do you think those are sort of illegitimate ideas? Well, I mean, I rights? could define a right to get a free ice cream every morning. Right. I mean, the question is, is it plausible that this is a core right that actually is necessary for me to lead a self-determined life? And I think being able to worship in the way that I seek is a core element to being able to lead a self-determined life. Being able to stop other people from worshipping as they want, if they're not infringing on what I do personally, 
is not one of those. Now, there may be some people who falsely believe it is, but at that point, we have to have a serious argument about what it actually takes to lead a self-determined life, and I'm pretty sure I'm going to have a better argument on that. I think that the French case is an interesting one to bring up because laicite, which is what Cameron's referencing, is not settled outside of France as a clear, obvious part of democracy, right? The idea that you don't have the freedom to express your religious ideas or, or your or your form of observance by covering your head or not covering your head, first of all, it's, it's arbitrarily applied because it doesn't apply to nuns, for example, and it, it tends not to apply to kipot. It really is very much directed at this point towards the hijab and, and towards, you know, Muslim head coverings. And the other piece of it is it's, it's hotly debated outside of France. It's, it's very much connected to a specific fight from 1910, an anti-clerical fight against the Catholic Church that has been applied in a modern context in a way that has become you know, a, a, a fight constantly. But actually, I want I want us to sort of step back a little bit and look at the ways in which democracy itself is being challenged as something that we'd want to uphold. I mean, one of the things I was really struck by in the book was when you discussed that, you know, millennials don't see democracy itself as necessarily worthy of pursuit. And that's something that's really shifted. And it gets back to, you know, sort of, I think that one of the core questions of the book, which is that to some degree, in the post-Cold War era, we believed that liberal democracy was sort of a settled final moment for governments. And in fact, in, it, it seems to have been a pass-through for certain places. And how has that happened both for the United States and how is it happening surely in parts of Europe where the populist parties are rising, even if in France Marine Le Pen is, is defeated, she still gets 35 percent of the vote. And then, of course, in places like Poland and Hungary, it's the ruling party. Yeah, so political scientists for a very long time assumed – that really strikingly, a certain type of political regime was very stable. So we knew that um, democracies in poor countries might fail. We've seen over the past year real uh, democratic backsliding in Kenya, and that's very worrying. It's it's terrible to watch. But political scientists wouldn't be surprised by that because Kenya doesn't have a level of um, economic development, level of education, and so on, where we would expect democracy to be stable. We knew all along that some autocratic countries might not transition to democracy. If you'd asked a political scientist in 1980 and told them, hey, you know what, Saudi Arabia, China, they're still dictatorships, they wouldn't have been shocked by that. But what they did observe is that democracies in countries where you'd had a couple of changeovers of governments, free and fair elections, where you had a certain level of wealth, about $15,000 GDP per capita in our terms, um, today's dollars, um, there was no examples of democracy collapsing. And we said that that's because there's a process of democratic consolidation through which democracy becomes, and this is an actual phrase in the literature, a very technical term, the only game in town. And so the only game in town means that everybody thinks that democracy is important, but they're not open to authoritarian alternatives to democracy, and that all of the main politicians, political movements who have a real stake in the system uh, accept the basic rules and norms of what it means to live in a liberal democracy. And so what I, what I show in the book is that that's no longer the case, that the number of people say it's important to live in a democracy has declined very rapidly. Um, when you look at people born in the 1930s, 1940s in the United States, over two-thirds say it's essential to me to live in a democracy. When you look at millennials born since 1980, less than one-third do. People are getting more open to authoritarian alternatives. 20 years ago, and this is now all age groups, one in 16 Americans said they were open to army rule. That's a good system of government, army rule. Now it's one in six. And by the way, there's similar data for a bunch of European countries. So in Germany, where I grew up uh, 20 years ago, 16% said that, you know, I think a strongman leader who doesn't have to bother with parliament and elections is a good system of government. Now it's 33%. 
in France and Britain, it doubled from 25 to 50 percent of people who save it now. Okay. Now you can say, hey, all of those are sort of abstract questions. You know what's what people are thinking when we're responding with survey items, and 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 that's a reasonable concern. But what we're seeing is that this is actually translating into political action, that we see the rise of people like Donald Trump. We see the rise of people like the alternative of Germany. We see people like Viktor Orban and Jaroslav Kaczynski in government who really do attack the most basic rules and norms of our political system. So if I were to play devil's advocate now again a bit. Um, for first time ever. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, just for the, sake of, uh, for the sake of playing the role. So what if someone were to argue that there's a big distinction between what is happening in Hungary and Russia and Poland, where certain parties have taken power and changed institutions, practically. We've seen courts being changed. We've seen democratic institutions being changed. We've actually seen practically things change. In other countries where populist forces are, uh, you've identified populist forces, where, where someone could argue nothing's really changed. People are simply voicing different ideas. And if we take Donald Trump right now as an example, obviously this is a, probably maybe the most heated example, but if someone were to argue, what has Donald Trump really changed in the United States? He, isn't, you know, he has uh, changed certain policies, but he's, he hasn't dismantled any institutions yet. He hasn't yet. changed the fabric of democracy yet. What kind of traction does that offer to, to, to really criticize him as undemocratic? He's offered very different ideas. He's offered very different rhetoric. But, you know, you, you make a big point of arguing that free speech is an important liberal value. So if he voices different ideas, what's so destructive about well, so, that? So first of all, I, 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 what I describe properly as that is illiberal Democrats. So I'm not saying they're undemocratic to begin with. They're illiberal, Right. Second point that's very important is you should look up what foreign policy was writing about Turkey and about Russia and for that matter about Poland one and a half years after the populists took power in Hungary. And the answer is, in the case of Turkey, I just looked up an article along those lines recently, it was, you know, Erdogan is bringing Muslim form of Christian democracy to Turkey and he's going to finally fulfill Turkey's democratic journey. Russia... Putin is finally cleaning up the mess of Yeltsin, who was an incompetent leader. This is a good move towards a more stable democratic system. So one and a half years into people's rule is not a good moment to judge them by the standards of your own publication. But beyond that, let's look at what's actually going on in countries like Poland and Hungary. And let's look at whether or not Donald Trump is or is not similar to that, because that's an important question. So when you look at Poland and Hungary, what you see is, and Jan van Müller made this point, the the claim by the populace to be an exclusive representative of a people, that they alone get to speak for the people. And by definition, everybody who disagrees with them is illegitimate. Everybody who disagrees with them does not deserve to be an integral part of the political system. What they then do in the next step is to start to undermine the courts, the free press, take over state media, make private media outlets be sold, they start to control the judiciary and the law investigation authorities, staffing them with their own cronies. And in Hungary, we now have an election coming up, which, aren't no long, which are no longer free and fair, because the Electoral Commission has basically been staffed by Orban's cronies. The opposition parties have been given huge fines, which essentially makes it impossible for them to campaign. The only party that's left standing is the party of the prime minister. So let's get to the United States. Donald Trump has called for his main adversary in the last elections to be jailed. He has said 
that he will leave people in suspense about whether they should, whether he would accept the outcome of the election. Given that he went on to cast doubt on the integrity of the election, even though he won it, it's quite plausible to think that he would have refused to concede if he had lost, and that makes a scary precedent for 2020. Um, and he is engaged in a massive attempt to put political influence on the Department of Justice and the FBI. Now, it's only one and a half years in, and there's lots of resistance to him. There's a very active civil society, which is doing its best to contain what I think is a clear and present attack on our liberal democracy. So you can say, hey, it's one and a half years in, and because we're all fighting, he hasn't completely ruined the system yet. That doesn't mean to me that there isn't a deep, clear similarity in rhetoric and, yes, in action between what Donald Trump is trying to do now in the United States and what we've seen play out in Turkey and Russia over the last 15 years, what, we've, what we're seeing play out right now in Poland and Hungary. Yeah, I, I mean, I think the example with the Justice Department is probably the, the clearest case. And yet, that's precisely where there's a, a prosecutor investigating him precisely for that. It seems to me, actually, one of the bigger, the other questions, though, is the attacks on the press. I mean, because we, we aren't really addressing that. And he has sowed doubt into the idea of a free and fair press in a way that I don't think we've seen, in, well, certainly not in my lifetime and certainly not in this country in my lifetime. So I think that's another piece of it. And, and I guess I want you to also get into this question of, you know, the rise of exclusionary nationalism and, and how that plays a role for both Trump and, and some of these other leaders that we're talking about. Look, I think, you know, let's talk for a moment about the sort of deeper cause, because I think it's really important to understand that Trump is a danger to a political system. I think you cannot understand what's going on in the United States at the moment without, without realizing that. But also understanding that Trump in many ways is more a symptom than the cause of all of this, right? So you see the rise of these very similar movements in lots of different countries around the world. And it started actually not yesterday, but, but a long time ago. So I show, for example, that the share of populist parties in Europe, uh, the vote share has gone up from about 8% in the year 2000 to about 25% now. And it's been a surprisingly steady rise when you aggregate all of the different countries. So what are the causes of that? Well, I think that there's, that there's free the signation of living standards for average citizens. From 1945 to 1960, the living standard of the average American doubled. From 1960 to 1985, it doubled again. Since 1985, it's been basically stagnant. The rise of social media, which makes it much easier for political outsiders to bypass gatekeepers and make the voices heard, also spread propaganda and, and fake news, spread, spread hate speech. But thirdly, um, and Sarah, this is, this, this, this is, I think, a very important point, it is the difficult transition of countries in Europe that thought of themselves as monoethnic and monocultural, even for the, perhaps we're not entirely, into multi-ethnic societies, which some people accept and celebrate, as do I, but, but there's a lot of resistance against that, that can be politically mobilized. And the United States, which has always been a multi-ethnic society, the attempt to overcome a clear racial hierarchy. We are now a much more equal society, and that's actually worth remembering and celebrating. Um, but clearly some people are pushing against that. And, and so one key aspect of right-wing populism around the world, there's also left-wing forms of populism, but of right-wing populism around the world is absolutely to say, only we are the real people. That means that if you stand against Trump, you're a traitor, 
you're an enemy of a people and all of those things. But if you're Muslim or if you're Mexican, you don't really belong either. It seems like you're you're hinting at an idea that I'd like to draw it a bit more. Was the United States in its previous concept of nationalism, was it a great exception compared to all the other countries you've named in the sense that a sort of exclusionary idea of nationalism that was now being introduced into the United States has actually been the norm everywhere else. Is, is what's happening here that the United States is losing its exceptionalism and simply reverting to a norm that's elsewhere? Or do you feel that Trump was exploiting a sort of running idea that was kind of beneath a sense that we had, that we were the exception? You know, I started looking at, at these questions of laicite in, in France in the early 2000s, and I kept thinking, well, we were doing this better. It seemed we were doing it better in 2003, even as we were going to a war in Iraq and we weren't doing things wrong. At the same time, it seemed that we had a better approach to immigration. We had an understanding of a multicultural society. We had a sense of ourselves as a multi-ethnic nation that was part of our strength. Strength. The question was, was I missing something beneath it that Trump has tapped into with this idea of, quote unquote, make America great again, tapping into some sort of optimism of the 50s where it was a sort of white past and present? So I think it's a little bit of both, right? So I think absolutely on the plane of ideas, the United States and Canada is quite different from Europe, right? In Europe in 1960, it was just obvious what makes a quote unquote real German, Italian, Swede. And it was ethnic descent. It was belonging to an imagined genetic community of people, right? And so if you'd ask somebody in Germany in 1960, somebody who's Muslim or somebody who's black, can they be a real German? The answer would be, no, obviously not. What are you talking about, right? Um, so I think that what's happening in Europe now, and, and, and I said it on German TV recently and have since um, gotten a lot of hate mail from, from, from the far right and was written up on the Daily Stormer and all kinds of very pleasant things, it is a uniquely, a historically unique experiment. We have to acknowledge that. And so actually it's not surprising that there's some resistance to it and that, that, that this is a very complicated process. But we've, we've got to work it out because there are lots of people from all around the world who now live in European societies who are citizens in many countries. And it's not clear what the alternative to working out an equal multi-ethnic society would be. It would either be a form of apartheid or it would be bloodshed. And so we've got to make this experiment work and stick. And the question is, how do we do that? And I have something to say about that in the book. But, um, but in the United States, um, you have this weird sort of slightly schizophrenic history where on the one hand, America has always been a nation of immigrants. When you fly an American flag in, an, in, in a U.S. classroom, which Europeans find alienating at first, they find it alienating because they think of flags as blood and soil. Whereas the American flag is never meant to be blood and soil. It was meant to be the Pledge of Allegiance to the Republic for which the flag stands. It's a political ideal that includes in principle everybody who can become a US citizen, everybody who comes and joins us, irrespective of color and creed and all of those nice things written in the inscription of the Statue of Liberty. Now, obviously, that has always coexisted with a very strict racial hierarchy in which people at different times in forms both more or less official and more or less blatant were excluded from full participation in citizenship um, in practice. And so I actually think that on the uh, cultural piece, on the piece of how do we build a common sense of belonging, despite America's history of racial injustice, I actually remain much more optimistic about the United States than about Europe because there is this much deeper repository of values of what I call inclusive patriotism to draw on. 
Um, but it's not easy in either place. You mentioned, I think, in the book, these parties, as in Germany, where you grew up, where there are parties of exclusive nationalism, but that don't challenge democratic institutions. In other words, they are not populist, but they are, just by their very character, the sort of Christian democratic union, the party of Angela Merkel, is a party of Christian democracy. And that, that first word, Christian, is there advisedly. The German state recognizes the Christian churches officially. So you have conservative parties there that it would be incorrect, seemingly, to call them populist, but they advance this idea of exclusive nationalism. And in No, I, I don't think that's accurate. I don't think it's accurate to say that the CDU under the leadership of Angela Merkel is advancing exclusive nationalism. Now, I think Germany has been an exclusively, you know, ha has had an exclusive conception of its belonging for long enough that there's deep remnants of that in all parts of a political spectrum. Um, but, but Angela and Merkel may be a little stronger on on the right wing of of a Christian Democratic Party. But to say that um, you know, for example, because Germany has a slightly different conception of a separation between church and state. And by the way, it is very rare for me to defend Germany. Um, so I I don't know how you've did, done it, Cameron. Um, <laughs> devil, but, on the service of, of the devil's fact, advocacy, the fact that in German schools you can have Protestant religious instruction, or Catholic religious instruction, or Jewish religious instruction, or by now in many states Muslim religious instruction. I don't like that. I prefer a public school that doesn't have any form of religious instruction. Uh, but that's just a different way of understanding the relationship between church and state. It's not saying you go to a German school, you have got to go uh, to lessons taught by a Catholic priest who tells you that you'll go to hell unless you believe in Jesus Christ. That's not the state of affairs. If it was, it would be a deep violation of the liberal element of liberal democracy. Uh, but that's not the case. I mean, Angela Merkel, to be fair, as far as I understand, and, and, and not only her, but other members in her party, they cite Christianity or a Christian worldview or a Christian idea of humanity as, as undergirding their politics. I mean, they, I even think in the most recent party conference, this is emphasized that their entire politics is on a foundation of, of a Christian understanding of, of humanity. And perhaps it doesn't go further than that. But I, I only brought this up to say, is it conceivable that there would be such a party in the United States, one that is not populist, but has a sort of more substantive idea of nationalism that would be uh, maybe a bit more exclusionary? Sure. I mean, I think, you know, th there's a question about how big a role you should allow religion to play in public life. And there's, um, you know, a broad range of answers to that, to laicite in France, which Sarah described earlier, which I think goes too far in the direction of saying, uh, so it has two problems, as she pointed out. The first is that it's not applied uh, in a consistent manner. So supposedly religion plays no role in French life, but it so happens that shops have to close on a Sunday, um, right? So that's, you know, that's a problem because it doesn't actually treat people equally. But let's say that the French started to be um, consistent about this. They, they hold a lottery to decide on which day the shops have to close, right? And they are as dogged in the, uh, you know, uh, assurance that people don't um, wear visible Christian religious symbols as they are in the, in, in the pursuit of making sure that there's no visible Muslim religious symbols in the streets. Then there would be, a, you know, an interpretation of what it means to separate church and state. I still think that there would go a little bit too far in restricting people's liberty. I don't think it's necessary for people to be so unfree to wear what they want, but at least they wouldn't discriminate between people. Now, on the other side, you have an idea of 
a much smaller separation of church and state where you can have publicly funded schools that have religious lessons, as you do in Germany. But, you know, you have to offer it to all major religions. You can't say it's only for Christians, right? Again, I think it's going a little bit too far in the other direction, a little bit too far in allowing the state and the church to be enmeshed. But again, it's not necessarily a problem because it, you know, applies to Jews as well as to, to Christians. And I think that in itself makes it an acceptable candidate for discussing what to do about that. You're right that there's versions of that in the United States, right? There are evangelical Christians who think that it should be much easier to incorporate your religious life into the public sphere. Um, that if pupils are very religious, they should be allowed to pray at school. Now, as long as they're consistent about that and say that freedom applies to Jews and to Muslims as well, I I'm against that. But I don't think that in itself is an attack on liberal democracy. I had expected the, this book to be far more dire, I suppose. I feel that there's an optimistic thread underneath that in some respects you sort of expect us to rise to the occasion in a way that I don't think I was expecting from reading your other work. But I thought this paragraph in particular, it gets to what we're talking about right now. You said, we need to think about what membership and belonging might mean in a modern nation state. The promise of multi-ethnic democracy in which members of any creed or color are regarded as true equals is non-negotiable. Difficult though it may be for countries with a deeply mono-ethnic conception of themselves to embrace newcomers and minorities, such a transformation is the only realistic alternative to tyranny and civic strife. I agree. I mean, but I, but I actually thought that this was also extremely optimistic and, and to some degree holding us to a very high standard that I wonder if you think we are reaching. Well, I don't think we're reaching it right now when you look at certain people's Twitter accounts. But, but that to me is a big question, right? I mean, so, so when you go back to the causes of populism that are outlined, right, how do you deal with social media? Well, I think you deal with it in part by fighting much harder for people to accept our values. Cameron, I mean, I think it's, it's, it's striking that you know, we have so much confusion in this conversation about what the basic elements of our system are. And that's because I don't think it's taught in colleges. I don't think it's taught in grad school. I don't think it's taught in high school, right? I think that getting clear on what it is that's animating our political system and explaining to people why, for all of the shortcomings that our current system has, for all of the shortcomings the United States and in particular has in its politics and so on, having a form of living together in which you get to decide how you lead your life. And that, no, that doesn't mean that you get to ban other people's religion. There's a difference between you being allowed to live your religion and you being allowed to ban other people's religion and being able to rule ourselves. Why is that better than living in Russia or Turkey or Iran or Venezuela? I think we need to reorient our educational system to talk about those things much, much more. I think when you talk about uh, the second cause, which is the stagnation of living standards, there are things we can do in order to convince people that we can have globalization, we can have free trade, we can have capitalism, and ensure that it actually delivers for people because it's political choices that explain why it's not currently delivering for people. And the third question is, well, how do we build a collective we in which we see what unites us across racial and religious and ethnic lines? And part of the answer there is to fight with all our might against white nationalism, against an exclusionary conception of what the nation means. It is to defend ethnic and religious and sexual minorities when they are being attacked, as they in part are being by the current administration in every way we can. But it's also, I think, and this is something that's personal to me, um, to embrace the need 
for a collective belonging at the national scale. I grew up, like many Europeans, thinking, let's just leave nationalism behind in the 20th century, the one that's so cruelly shaped. Um, and I think the problem with that is that it leaves the playing field of nationalism entirely to the right. Nationalism, in my mind, is a half-domesticated animal. And if you leave it to itself, or if other people come and stoke it and prod it, it's going to go wild and do a lot of damage. And so I think that we need to actually be proud to be American, use the symbols, the language of the nation, not claim that our nation, because of its real past injustices, is beyond redeeming and we should run away from it. We should claim it, but we should claim it for an inclusive form of nationalism. Since we've been talking about France a lot, Barack Obama, I think, was a master at doing this, but, but there's a good example from France as well. Emmanuel Macron, who I have quite a bit of political disagreements with and other issues, held this speech in, in the campaign in the city of Marseille, which is a very diverse city, saying, look, the city has 2,000 years of history of immigration. When I look into the room today, I see people from the Ivory Coast, from Mali, from Algeria, from Italy, from Poland. But what do I see? I see the people of Marseille. What do I see? I see the people of France. Look here, ladies and gentlemen, from the Front National, the party of Marine Le Pen. This is what it means to be proud to be French. And, and I think we can fight for that. We, we don't live it. The president doesn't live it, but, but, but I think that that is something that together we can and we have to accomplish. Can I ask you one last question? And I know we're, we're closing in on time. You have this phrase in there about emancipatory potential of globalization, which I think is not universally accepted either. And I wonder about this sense, and, and I, I like this idea of kind of reclaiming a kind of patriotic nationalism, which is in an inclusive context. But I wonder how this addresses the question of the attacks on the European Union and the kind of agreements and relationships that have been under attack as well. And I wonder if this gets to this question of have we lost a sense of history? I mean, you grew up in Germany. Uh, my family came originally from Vienna. The question is, have we lost a sense of why the EU was actually such a hopeful idea, of why this, these peaceful agreements were sort of a sort of halcyonic addressing of centuries of war? Where is that in, in all this equation? Well, I, I would say more broadly that, you know, when we go back to some of that shocking data about people not giving the same importance to democracy, and especially young people not giving the same importance to democracy, as they once did, being removed from the alternatives to our political system is a big part of the reason for that. So part of what animated the European Union was, we just had two incredibly destructive wars on our continent. You know, offense is the best defense. You know, the only way to fix this is for all of us, completely against the odds, an unimaginable way. When you think back to 1946 and what it would have looked like to, to imagine a, a common European political enterprise, um, but that's the best way we have of building a better world. Um, now, you know, that's abstract to people. The, the, the thought that if you vote for somebody who makes you all kinds of facile promises and who seems to play fast and loose with the rules, you might actually wind up living in a place like Turkey or like, like Russia or like Venezuela. That's very abstract to young people. And so I think part of the answer here is to do the job with foreign policy after I... I, I I ripped you guys, I may as well lord you guys, um, <laughs> does a very good, yeah. good, good job of doing, which is to cover other countries and show what it actually looks like uh, to live in those countries. And it's to fight for our political values. I mean, I think in the end, this is an optimistic book. It's a scared book, but it's also an optimistic book because for now we retain the ability to act. And for I can't promise anybody a happy end, 
I think there's lots and lots of things we can do toward an incredibly important political goal. And that's energizing. I, for the first time in my political life, have the sense that I'm fighting for something that's truly important and have a small opportunity for real impact. And each of us only has a small opportunity for impact. None of us are going to fix this on our own. But every person has an opportunity for impact. And, you know, if everybody who's listening to this goes out and, and does something to, to spread the values of global democracy, to stand up for institutions when they're under attack, to make sure that politicians who respect the basic rules and norms of liberal democracy, of whatever political persuasion they may be, um, get re-elected to office, then I think together we have a pretty good chance of doing something. On that note, I want to thank Yasha Munk, whose book, The People Versus Democracy, Why Our Freedom is in Danger and How to Save It, is out March 5th from Harvard University Press. And Cameron, this is Sarah Wildman for FP. You've been listening to Foreign Policy's The ER Podcast. I'm Sarah Wildman, and I've been your host. The podcast is produced by Shelby Bosted. For more information about foreign policy and to subscribe to the ER, please visit foreignpolicy.com, iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you.